Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Nice. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is game designer Mark Termino of Dark Wizard Games. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, guys. So, um, tell us what you do. What What well, is what Dark Wizard Games? Sounds like, what's my line? What's, what's, my, what's my line? <laughs> no, go ahead. Right, right. Right. Well, what Dark Wizard Games is, it's a small press games business I've launched a few years ago, and I develop retro-style Dungeons & Dragons uh, first edition uh, adventure-type modules that are geared to work with basically the Osric system, but Osric is basically the generic version of first edition AT&T, so basically Osric is the, the legal way you can sort of create first edition-style adventures and use kind of the same kind of rules um, without any kind of you know problems or something. This you can't me. use certain monsters from D and D that are copyrighted, but but that you just make up a different one that's similar. This cracks me up. You know, I I played D and D when it was new, and when you bought it in you know three books in a box, and this is just just calling right back to that. And the cover designs look. Oh, yes. The cover designs yes, look like you. the books, like the old books. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, I, I, we, we, we tried really hard to, to reach a, a look and feel that was like the original ones, but yet small enough, distinct enough um, to be its own sort of, uh, uh, what they call it, um, product, um, not identity, but uh, there's a certain word for it. But basically, branding. Um, there you go, something like that, branding. Yeah, there was a certain <laughs> name for that. Uh, mm-hmm. But basically, yeah, it's funny because when you look at the actual real old modules, they're all kind of off kilter a little bit. Uh, like the, the yellow stripe is kind of not in the same position each time. And you know what I mean? The, the text mm-hmm. is kind of different, you know, spacing. I guess it's because the, back then they were using regular print press type of things to make those things versus computers. Oh, yes. Um, but it, it all yeah, had to be laid out. By, I'm sorry. You go <laughs> ahead. Oh, good. Yeah, but, oh, sorry. Um, but it's just kind of funny because, um, you know, look, as I go through the older ones, I see the things, you know, that are kind of, you know, different. Uh, but just because they were just made that way or something by, by happenstance or the way they printed it, you know what I mean? Um, uphill also, both, what's funny, too, is – go ahead. Say, uphill both ways, in the snow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny, too, because I noticed that um, in developing my adventures, I've got four of them now um, – for uh, uh, for for like adventure modules, 
Um, I noticed though in um, in um, in making mine, I realized uh, some of the same limitations they ran into in the earlier modules. So, for example, in, in old modules like Ghost Tower of Iverness and and um, I, um, that one specifically was one of my favorites. They they had like pre-generated characters and in that module for you for the tournament game. And uh, I think there was like maybe six or eight characters and they took up like half of a page each because they did the full stats and full descriptions. So in other words, it took up like an extra um, two pages, like in the book or something. Um, and then I did that too in my adventures. It took up extra pages too. But then I realized like later on the other old adventures like Tomb of Horrors, they started switching from doing that to being like all the characters on one page the pre-generated characters just on one page. Hmm. And obviously it was done to save page counts and costs. You know what I mean? Because the more pages you have in the book, the more expensive it is to print. So it's just kind of funny how, because I, I used to like having the full page things and that's why I did them in mine for the pre-gens. But uh, it was just, I remember back in the old days when they switched it to one pagers, I was like, why'd they do that? Now I realize why they did that as I'm developing my own uh, printed materials. Uh, so it's just kind of funny running into some of the same kind of things. Now I see why they did certain things in the older modules as far as the printing and, and, and you know, compacting them down to the smallest number of pages that they could be, like for printing costs. So the games are, <clears throat> your modules are compatible with a number of different gaming systems, and one of them is called Osric. And while... I am familiar with Dungeons and Dragons and, and first edition AD&D. This is what I cut my teeth on. I didn't know what Osric was. Could you could you uh, explain what that is for our listeners? Sure. Uh, what the Osric is is it stands for the old school system reference and index compilation, and it's basically a sort of um, rule system that was designed by a guy named Stuart Marshall and another gentleman named Matthew Finch. And uh, I'm not quite sure offhand what year they developed it in, but it's basically like their own like kind of generic um, open gaming, basically, is what it's considered as open gaming, meaning that you can utilize this rule system and create materials for it and you can independently sell those materials and you don't have to pay any kind of royalties or things like that. It's sort of similar to like how, <clears throat> excuse me, how Wizard of the Coast has the D20 license mm -hmm. or the, the, you know, or the license for fifth edition where you can sort of create, you know, materials for fifth edition and then resell them as your own without any kind of uh, royalty or anything back to the originator. You just have to include their license and adhere to the license um, um, or the, or the, either the Osric or the, the open gaming license as well. Um, so basically, Osric is basically, it's a rule system that's like first edition D&D. It's basically what it was designed to be, uh, was a generic version of first edition D&D, so you could play kind of first edition D&D with the other folks out there making materials for it, like modern type materials. I remember so the, unofficially, the first edition D&D, unofficially. I remember the the very first edition of D&D. The rules were very clean, very fast, quick to understand. Uh, but it wasn't advanced, was it? No, no, well, yeah. It, <laughs> three, I said three little booklets in a box, a, a tan box, right. not the white box. That's for noobs. Oh, the white box. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I think you started before me. I started around 1980, so I think mine was the um, the the 
the expert set and the basic set, the purple box and the um, and the blue one, with the one with the woman and the fighting the dragon on the cover, mm-hmm. and then the yeah, and then the, yeah, and then the expert one had the wizard looking at the woman fighting the dragon on the cover from the previous one, and there's been a little thing or something. Yeah, that's classic. The New. first one had. Yeah, those were the two sets I started with. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and then the the first edition of the the, the 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 books, the player's handbook, the monster manual, and the the DM's guide. I had all those and everything, theme folio. And, I remember and being. I remember as a dungeon master. I remember being just completely freaking overwhelmed. Uh, I mean, you would you would spend all of this time and you would map everything out on quadrille paper, you know, because it, we didn't have computers then. That's what we used. Uh, right. And uh, and when it came time to run the game, um, and I had to roll stats or or events, I never knew what I was doing. <laughs> I just sort of faked my way through it. But there are dungeon masters who have a much better grasp on this, and um, I was wondering how you play balance this stuff. Uh, do you play test the modules well, before you publish to, them? They? Okay. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> what it is is right now um, I have uh, several folks. Cause it's hard for me to kind of arrange for a specific group to get together. So what I do is I have folks that are around um, that that are that are uh, fans of the of the of the modules and and uh, they like to uh, they, they'll do play testing for me. So I'll set up things with them where with different encounters or different series of encounters. And then I hand it off to them, and then they go and play test it with their individual groups and things like that, and then get back to me with the the feedback or the specifics of things like that. And then it, if and when I can, I'll test the things myself, of course, too. But primarily, I, I like to rely on some of my outside um, um, friends and, and supporters and fans of the work because a lot of them are way more um, detail oriented with the stuff than than uh, than I am as to certain things. You know what I mean? Because they're really um, know lots of material and know lots of more game systems than I do, and uh, and just sort of you know they're 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 good um, um, folks to to work with that that can keep everything in check and and um, and in balance. So, do you find yourself moving uh, more into a producer's role and less? Uh and out of a designer's role as you do more and more of these or, or do you still keep a firm hand in the design okay. aspect? Oh yes. Yes. All the ones are firmly my design right now. The first three books were written by myself. They're hanging off into the vampire queen, secret machines of the star spawn and, um, the villains of the undercity. And then the fourth module was written by my friend and, and, um, co, um, co, uh, co-producer here uh, with, with the company, um, Alan Chamberlain, and uh, he wrote the book of Dwarven King, and then I added on several encounters and like the mind car thing and mm-hmm. several other encounters into it. But he did the book of the Reich. He had been wanting to. He's a, a fantasy. Um, he's a screenwriter also, as well as a filmmaker and a director hmm. and a producer. So he he likes to yeah, do a lot of fantasy. He's written a whole screenplay, um, um, a huge like um, thing on like the whole like um, story with, with magic and fantasy and things like that. So anyway, so he wanted to do one. So we felt the Dwarven one was a good one. So he did the fourth one, the, the vault of, of that, vault of the Dwarven King. Yeah. Vault of the Dwarven King. Yeah. And then oh, there's oh, monsters. Going forward. Oh, going forward real quick. Um, yes. I'm going to continue to do a lot of the writing right now. 
However, in the future, at some point, I will expand out to like suddenly start hiring other office. For example, Joe Pierce, uh, who you and I know as well, mm-hmm. who we worked with before, he's going to do module number seven, and then I'll co-write it with him. He's doing the bulk of the writing, and I'll add in little tweaks and encounters and things like that. Uh, but so in the long run, yes, I do want to expand out where I can actually start paying folks to do the writing of the modules. That's really the only way you can kind of expand this kind of a business, if you want to mm-hmm. call it a business, uh, because it you need constant material to be able to be published, you know what I mean, every couple of months and having something completed by somebody else speeds up the process, because um, then I can, you know, go in and add things or edit the, those documents or things like that. But the, the notion would be in the future, I hire other writers and I go into it and, you know, see what I like, what, what I maybe want to change or tweak and do that. And I hire the artists and map makers and all that stuff. But the bottom line is right now, yes, I'll do the bulk of them. But in the future, I will probably start bringing in other authors to kind of expand the business. So you already out. have... So that's really the only way you can do it. You already have a stable of artists that you work with. Yes. Yes, uh, I have a stable of artists. They're they're all great um, artists, and they they like working on the projects. And and um, and uh, we definitely love having them, and the folks like them. I'm very specific about the artists I choose. Um, they have to be fit in with the old school style. They also have to um, sort of um, you know every picture I choose that I want made. I pick a specific artist to do it that fits kind of the the theme or the feeling or the tone of how I want that that artwork to be de- depicted. You know what I mean? So if it's a certain one, I'll have Brian McCraney do it. But if it's a certain other one, I may have some other artist do it, um, like Ed Lacaban or something for certain other types of monsters, just to give you a different, different kind of feeling or, or theme or um, tone that, that I want for certain things for that part of the module I want to feel. So you have five books on the website right now, and um, yeah. you talked about number seven being in the works, which means number six must be really close to being released. Number well, actually, technically, that's what it is. It's a little tricky because the first four modules are one to four, and those are the modules. And then the fifth book that you're seeing is actually the, my first supplement book. I wrote a supplement oh, the, called Monsters of Mayhem, number one. Ah, it's like a monster manual. Uh huh. And then. And that's the one we just released now. In fact, I just dropped the files off to the printer, a print company yesterday. So they're printer's proof of the Monsters of Mayhem book. And then that'll be ready this week, probably tomorrow. And I'll go pick it up and review it and take a look at it. And that's the first physical copy that will be made. And then if I look, I look at it and as long as I approve it, then I'll tell the printer, okay, go ahead, go. And then he'll print up like 150 of them or 175 copies of it. Uh, and next week, and then I'll pick them up, and then I can start fulfilling them to all the, the the Kickstarter backers and all the pre-order folks that have been pre-ordering the book. So to answer your question, um, yes, actually, so technically, module number five is is the next one coming up. Um, I, we're I'm thinking it's going to be like a like a dragon and a princess kind of adventure, um, and then number six is coming up is going to be about hell. And that's going to be a big, huge one. Um, number five will be about a 32-page standard module. Mm-hmm. And possibly, yeah, possibly a box set we've been talking about. We have a company that can make like a nice box. Uh-huh. So I might do a box set beyond number five's campaign. But number six uh, is going to be about hell and about the satanic panic of the 80s. So oh, the yeah. players basically uh-huh. go to hell. 
and have to go through all the levels of hell. It's going to be like a big module, like 64 pages. It'll have three covers, like an exterior cover and two interior covers. Like, like Dwarven King actually has two covers, the exterior cover, and there's an interior cover that's removable that has maps on it too. So the hell one will have all that stuff, and it'll be a big kind of fun um, thing to do. And, and uh, it'll be like a found footage concept. So the, the um, so the fifth one is um, yeah, a dragon dragon and princess story. Is it? Are you are you Something saving like the are you saving the dragon from the evil princess? Something like that. It'll be like a twist, basically. The, the, the joke is some kind of twist to it. Either either the, the dragon wants to get rid of her and he can't because nobody can get to her or something like that. You know what I mean? Or maybe she's in love with him or something. Or some kind of funny twist. Usually all my modules, I try to give them some kind of twist either at the end or or something along the way that, that sort of you know, um, makes them a little, little, little different and a little bit kind of amusing, you know. Um, that's one of the hallmarks of the the maximum dungeon line uh basically is they're kind of irreverent and um and kind of do a twist on on uh on on the usual thing so yeah basically the dragon princess thing something like that probably where it's some kind of funny funny twist where where nobody <laughs> she wants to get rid of her basically or something and nobody can rescue her but according to the dragon code he can't kill her because he has to have somebody rescue her. Right. Uh, so it's got kind of a funny twist like that, basically. Uh, it possibly uh, might be um, 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 like a pink module or something like that, also the color. So I'm still working on a title. So, uh, so yeah. Um, but, but basically that's kind of for number five, yeah. Will be something. Cause I don't remember specifically, they're really, I mean, other than Palace of the Silver Princess, which you weren't really saving the princess from a dragon. You were just kind of saving the princess. She was trapped in a gem. If you remember the old Palace of the Silver Princess module. I, um, so I, I didn't really I didn't get to play. Uh, I sort of dropped out of D&D uh, by the time they started introducing modules. Uh, I went oh, I went through okay. I went through uh, Dungeons and Dragons and then Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which basically detailed it it added some some granularity to the detail of the kinds of interactions that you could have as a player with the the non-player characters as i remember it that was the advantage of using it you know like uh like pick up pick up a random object and and try to use it as a weapon well the old rules wouldn't allow you to do that and with i think with advanced D&D you, you could and uh you know right. things, things like that, uh, but beyond that, um, yeah, I I never got to play any of the modules. So uh, my experience with Dungeons and Dragons, while I spent countless hours with them, I never got to actually play one of the modules. Oh, okay, interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of the old modules were um, were fun. Um, I had played a lot of them. I had all a lot of them. Um, yeah, some of my favorites were like Ghost Tower of Iverness or White Plume Mountain, which actually technically were kind of laying the groundwork for the kind of works that I'm creating now. As far as those particular modules, like Ghost Tower, who was which was written by Alan Hammock, who's actually one of my friends on Facebook, who actually likes my games as well. He, he told me um, um, he's been um, working on playing them. Um, some of them with uh, with some folks, but but he wrote um, Ghost Tower, and that was sort of one of my favorites, and sort of uh, uh, sort of set the stage for 
um, certain things. Like in my adventures, when I write them, I try to make most of the rooms interesting or have something happening rather than just sort of a generic, oh, there's a, there's an empty dungeon room here. Oh, there's a, there's a skeleton on the floor. There's cobwebs over there. Okay. There's a door to the north. Okay. Next. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That was, I try to make a twist to them. So every room has something that's memorable or interesting, you know, to it. Um, and that was sort of like the way I felt like with, um, with ghost tower and also with, um, Lawrence Schick's, um, white plume mountain. That was another one that was every kind of encounter had something unique and interesting going on. Um, now, whether or not they had planned it that way specifically, um, but that was sort of like what I kind of gravitated to when, in the old days when I was playing. So my sort of the, the way I would try to run things as a DM, and turned out in the future here. Now that we're living in the future of <laughs> twenty eighteen, um, that that's sort of how I write the modules that I'm. So you're writing um, you're writing modules for your twenty year old self. Your 18, <laughs> right, exactly. Your eighteen year old self. Because my but the sad thing is my brain, as far as D&D, is still sort of locked into that mindset from when I was like 13 to like 19 or 20. Yeah. Well, um, but... Is that the bulk of the time? But, played, but so. you seem to have found a, a niche because, uh, I mean, you've just redone your... You've just redone the website. The website is darkwizardgames.com. If you want to go there yeah. and look, you can order the various modules. They're about $25 a piece. And uh, that includes shipping. Say again. That, oh, in- that includes shipping for the. Oh, that includes the shipping. That includes the U.S. shipping, basically. Nice. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so you actually get paper printed. These are not just PDFs. Uh, uh, you actually get them printed. Oh, no, no, we printed have PDFs available, but but yeah, no, these are professionally printed by a book company. Um, so I do like that's the thing where I have to do small press print runs. You know what I mean, like a hundred books at a time or two hundred books. Books, mm-hmm. so that's why there's a little bit of a cost thing there. Like as opposed to if I could print up like ten thousand books, then I'd get a higher cost, you know, lower cost for the book where I could charge a little bit lower. But but basically, yeah, they're professionally printed books. In fact, on the website, any of the books, um, although monster, they have a, a video, like a show, like a little video mm-hmm. where you can click it and look at the video where I show the book, and you can see me turning pages. You can actually physically see what it what it looks like, um, as well as like a PDF little preview. But we do sell PDF versions of the books on the website as well for a lower cost. But the, the actual printed book versions are real books that are professionally printed, and they're the same size as the old books and fit nicely along the, the shelf alongside of them. Oh, that's really nice. I mean, I, I'm reading the, the description here. It says... Uh, that they have the the classic look and feel both inside and out, including the blue maps and the old school fantasy art from some of the best artists in the business, uh, you know, and and all of this stuff just makes me go, oh God, I wish I had the time to do this, <laughs> you know, because this I, re- I, I know, remember actually, spending- if you ever do have the time, I can yeah I can guide you through the process. Yeah, <laughs> I've helped a lot of folks. There's been like four four different folks now that are doing retro modules and selling them. Oh, you mean designing them? Oh, um, I'd love to. Through. I would love yeah. to design a module. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, um, um, I like I said, I've been guiding several folks through the process, and in fact, um, you know, uh, two of them like uh, Kevin mm-hmm. Watson, um, Alex Fruskian, or Nelson Bailey, and Joe Pierce. Uh, just sort of loosely kind of uh, advise them on different things, set them up with like the print company. Although Joel uses a different print company than me, but the bottom line is yes. 
So uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's, okay. it's interesting. Because I would have to. I would have to get a few of my uh, my my seventeen year old goofy things out of my head first. I mean, when I was DMing, we ha- I had this level one dungeon where I I had uh, I was it, there, it was, buddy it we had an official i had an official dungeon greeter because it was set up for level 1 players you know because we were all new to it because d and d itself was brand new anyway uh so i had an official dungeon greeter named presley he was elvish oh okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> what she said right <laughs> you know and just crazy stuff like that uh um there was a i remember there was uh, uh, the Atifada Inn, which stood for a tavern for Albert to destroy, <laughs> uh, you know, because he, uh, we had this one player named Albert who, uh, who liked to find the local tavern, kill everybody in it and roll the drunks and see what was in their pockets. You're supposed to save that, that was, for the right. dungeon, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. And and he would he would invariably burn the place down every time. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you That's know funny. stuff like that. Uh, there was Maybe a uh, there was a flaming broadsword hidden in the water cooler uh, in the back room. You know, because it because it, it had to be kept in the water cooler. It would burst into flame. So. <laughs> Yeah, they, they found the they found a flaming broadsword in the in the uh, the water cooler, bubbling in the tank. <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Yeah, because in uh, I mentioned the tavern in my villains of the Undercity uh, adventure, it opens up in the tavern, um, and and of course the, the tavern is filled with you know ne'er do wells and monsters, and I describe it as. The place basically smells like a combination of bad perfume, monster farts, and bad breath, or some body odor, something like that. <laughs> when you think about it, what else is a tavern filled with monsters and mystery is going to smell like or feel like? Right. Um, there's also a table in there of different events that could happen, like you get challenged at the arm wrestling contest, you know, where somebody comes up to you and tries to pick your pocket, things like mm-hmm. that. And then there's even a, a thing where there's they challenge you to a steering, a guy will hawk up to you. And challenge you to a steering contest, but he has strabismus. And if you don't know what that is, it's like he has a crossed eye. So, if I, it's like, so, so you don't know which eye to look at. Right, exactly. It's so how you're going to win the steering contest with him. <clears throat> but yeah, so it's fun to kind of you know, um, do. Of course, none of the events are actually positive in there. They're all kind of negative. But then again, right. what, you know, what, a, what good is going to happen in a tavern filled with monsters and, and right. nerdy wells? But yeah. But no, that sounds funny what you were saying uh, with your uh, tavern. So, what's uh, uh, ha- do you have any um, dreaded gazebo stories? <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> any gazebo stories? <laughs> you, you've heard the story about the dread gazebo. Oh, no, no. Every, every, this is one of those apocryphal. Uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons stories, and we know this guy who swears he knows the guy who a guy who was there. Yeah, our, our, our <laughs> friend Jerry Hollenby. <laughs> wow, our friend Jerry Hollenby swears he knows the guy who was there to witness this. And everybody's uh, just two people away from everything, huh? <laughs> anyway, this, basically, this guy, this player, didn't know what a gazebo was apparently, and. 
it's oh, okay. it was a, he thought it was a, some kind of monster or something. So it it's oh, yeah, it's <laughs> the the tale of Eric and the dread gazebo. And it's uh uh, and he wants to attack the gazebo. <laughs> and he says, he a, gazebo? a gazebo? What color is it? It's white, Eric. <laughs> How far away is it? About 50 yards. How big is it? It's about 30 feet across, 15 high, fifteen feet high with a pointed top. I use my sword to detect good on it. It's not good, Eric. It's a gazebo. I call out to it. It won't answer. It's a gazebo. I sheath my sword and draw my bow and arrows. Does it respond in any way? No, Eric, it's a gazebo. I shoot it with my bow. Roll to hit. What happened? There is now a gazebo with an arrow sticking out of it. Wasn't it wounded? Of course not, Eric. It's a gazebo. But that was a plus three arrow. It's a gazebo, Eric. A gazebo. If you really want to try to destroy it, you could try to chop it with an axe, I suppose. Or you could try to burn it. But I don't know why anyone would even try. It's a freaking gazebo. <laughs> it doesn't even budge when you when you hit it. it. It must be really mad or something. Eric. Long pause. He has no axe or fire spells. I run away. <laughs> and then the DM says, it's too late. You've awakened the gazebo. <laughs> uh -oh. It catches you and eats you. <laughs> That's not all you can do at that point. It, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this player had no idea what a gazebo was. You wouldn't want to bet he grew up to be an architect or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you gotta, anyway, uh, have you have you had any similar experiences where where the player just did something completely yeah. off the wall with your scenario that you had no idea uh something oh, wow. legend do you have any stories yeah, like yeah, that there was there was always like um some something like that where where some player would try to come up with some weird thing like i forget what it was as they you could attack some kind of, I forget what it was. it was. I think we were playing like Isle of Dread or something, and it was like a dinosaur or something, and and somehow they commandeered the dinosaur, or they wanted to commandeer the dinosaur, and somehow they were able to get it and like ride it around like with a horse or something. <laughs> uh, and then some other adventure where they you wanted to use the monster's intestines like a whip or something. I mean, they, sometimes they would go into like some weird direction, but I would try to steer them back. But, but yeah, things like that. Um, um, or I would hear, not specifically in my adventure, but I remember when I first started, um, the guys that taught me D&D &D when I was a kid in 1980, they were telling me stories about, uh, they were playing Tomb of Horrors, and the guy fell into the first pit, which is like, it's designed that there's only one entrance, or three entrances in Tomb of Horrors. One of them is the real entrance, the other one is like a false trap or something, dead or two traps. Anyways, the guy fell into the trap and was trying to use like a magic, magic, um, shovel or something to dig a hole through the wall or something. I mean, but once again, we would try to, in mind, I would try to like, you know, steer away from, from uh, uh -huh. things where they were <laughs> trying to cheat, cheat around the thing. But uh, that's another, another one too, our favorite adventures that were similar with Tomb of Horrors also, where it's all kind of unique and each room is sort of a unique trap or something special about it. So once again, another one of my influences, but yeah. So yeah, sometimes the players would do weird, weird things. Um, but um, and there's there's a lot of room for that in in my uh, adventures. I mean, uh, even in, in villains of the undercity, at one point you get to like a uh, like a like a um, 
uh, it's called uh, there's a there's a pit fighting um, thing where they get to a room with all the monsters and and they're all like having like a like a pit fighting contest and they <clears throat> there's a rock and roll band playing it's like a like a like looks like a bunch of gargoyles like animals but they're playing like electric guitars it's only like a Kiss type band it's called the Kill Band and there's a drawing <laughs> of a suit so they're playing rock and roll and then you go into the pit fight and if you win if you beat the the the, the main bad bad guy then and uh, then they all celebrate uh, with with uh, things. So some of the DMs that, uh, and then the, what they do is they, they, if you win the contest versus the guy you're pit bodying, then uh, then they they barbecue the the guy that lost or something. I try to give you the barbecue in, in, your, in your honor that you beat him. And then the band plays on. But some of the DMs that were playing that thing that told me that they would have the band play something like, "I want to hack and slash all night," like a parody, like a Kiss song. <laughs> so things like that where they, the, the DMs were able to take what I kind of set up for them and then, you know, really run with it. You know what I mean? And, and think of their own kind of funny things to do there and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's funny. There's a lot of interesting encounters throughout the, all the modules. So I try to make them, um, um, give enough stuff there for the DM to work with and then, and then even take it even further, um, into the, to, to the extreme. Um, but yeah. So fun. what was your, what was the moment where you decided, Hey, I want to try to make D and D modules where, what were you doing and where were, uh, what led okay. to the first one? Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, the, the first thing I've seen of it was back around 2001 or 2002 when, when the D 20 license came around and suddenly a company called Goodman games, uh, which is a big company now, um, they started publishing like retro style first edition modules, but they weren't first edition. They were they were D twenty. They were for the D twenty system, which was D and D three and a half, three point five. Mm-hmm. So the the D and D yeah the third edition D and D or fourth edition yeah third or fourth edition anyway D and D three and a half was was set up for the D twenty license. So Goodman Games started publishing these retro modules that was the same thing where they have the yellow stripe and they look a certain way. They look like the old ones, and I was like. What? What? Huh? Excuse me? You, you can you can make a modern day D D module or something and make it look like the the way that the old ones look, which was awesome. What? You know what I mean? I, I want to do this, but at the time in two thousand one, two thousand two, I didn't really have the the capability um, to do it to coordinate. I didn't have the connections as far as the. It wasn't until Kickstarter came around um, around twenty when I got into it around twenty eleven or twenty twelve. When I started backing projects and I saw, I started meeting artists and meeting map makers and cartography people and graphic designers, and I knew Alan from working with him on projects at that point. Um, so the first season of it was in 2001, 2002, when I saw Goodman Games doing it, and I was like, wow, that's great. I, I'd like to do that at some point, but I just can't do it. I tried doing it around 2004 on my own in like my PDF of an adventure that um, I, I, didn't, I didn't sell. I just started trying to make it. And it just was not, didn't turn out like anything like my modern ones that, that came about. It was, it, it, it just wasn't right. You know, it, it didn't have the, I didn't have the, the, what's the word, the formula at that point. It wasn't until 2012 when I finally said, I'm going to do this. And I made the Hanging Coffins module because I had um, the right folks um, that, that I could work with, like Alan, that could do the graphic design and, and, and make lay it on the book form. And, artists like Brian McCraney and, and Bradley McDevitt and Jeff D who did the cover and all these people that 
um, you know, we're professionals, you know what I mean? But the, the thing I tried to do on my own in 2004 just, just did not look right or feel or play right. So I just sort of, you know, didn't do anything with it. Although some of the things from it, I was able to work into the monsters um, book. Some of the monsters I had invented that, that I didn't go anywhere with. I was able to incorporate them, the good ones. But, uh, but basically, so to answer your question, <clears throat> um, excuse me. So 2001, 2002 is when I discovered I wanted to do it. Tried to do it in 2004 unprofessionally. Didn't sell anything. I didn't try to sell anything. It just didn't work. But then in 2012, I said, hey, I want to do this. Now the Kickstarter was around. It was possible. Because mm-hmm. now you could, you know, raise money and actually hire people, you know, to, to do it right. Um, so that's what I did was I launched my first one on, uh, on Kickstarter on June around 2012 for Hanging Coffins of the Vampire Queen. So once again, at that point, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I was very fortunate that through enough trial and error, I hit upon the right formula, the right look and feel for how the cover would be, the the the, the, the naming kind of conventions of how the modules would be named with, it, with an interesting name, um, the way that the storylines would be as far as structural um, things with, you know, like a twist and, you know what I mean, and everything was sort of interesting, was trying to be interesting in every encounter. You know what I mean? The formula, mm-hmm. basically, that I hit upon, and I was fortunate that it, it was successful, that the campaign was successful, and, and the folks seemed to really like it. And then once I did that, I realized, <clears throat> excuse me, hey, I think that I can make more of these. Um, you know, at first, I just wanted to get the first one done, let alone here we are now at number you know five is coming up. You know, you know how with the monsters coming up. Yeah, five and a monsters manual. Yeah, so it's it's. <clears throat> but but I was fortunate, excuse me, that I had the right people and the right folks and the right timing and the right storylines that I could come up with and the right sort of uh, structure that carried through the modules to make each one its own kind of um, um, unique um, thing that's that's that that the folks uh, like. So, so Dark so, Wizard Games yeah. looks like I mean this this new website it, the the website design is brand new. And it looks yeah. really strong, and this is really good-looking stuff. What uh, are are you planning on doing? Um, like more more modules a year? Uh, I mean, it's you've yeah. been doing this five years, and you've got you, you've just got the fifth module coming out. That's one module a year. That's not very fast. Uh, it's not. I, that's that's one of my downfall. That's one of my drawbacks, unfortunately. <laughs> to the to the to the, to the you know, sadness of a lot of the backers of those, I I, I kind of run behind a little bit on some of these ones just because it's taken a while to to get there. But I'm working on improving my speed. So to answer your question, <laughs> excuse me. Yes, um, what I'd like to do, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, is possibly in the next because right now the way it works is I I set up a Kickstarter and then I raise the money and I and I and I and I start writing the module and, and then get the artwork done. And, and then finally at some point it's all done and I get to the thing and get the printer and get the people. But sometimes I run behind um, on that process. So what I'd like to do is, is at some point here in the near future, it's, excuse me, a switch to like a, um, not switch, but, but create a Patreon basically. Cause it's hard cause, cause businesses like this, that, that are sort of a niche market, like you're selling the D&D module. It's, it's not quite the thing that like, you know, thousands of people would buy every single day you know, to mm-hmm. sustain as a regular business. So you know, what I'd like to do is set up a Patreon um, at some point um, soon here and then have that run 
um, you know, every month. And then with that, then I use those, those funds to sort of try to get me to a point where I can do it more as a full-time job versus like a part-time thing. Mm-hmm. So in other words, get the Patreon to, do, get to come in and kind of get me a point where I can spend my days writing and sort of do that as sort of a, a full-time type of um, gig. So that way, then I can get more things out quicker. Uh, definitely that way. You know what I mean? We're both my day job, and all I do is sit there and do it. Right now, though, I I can't do that. I have to do uh, computer work, and I have to take care of an elderly parent, uh, you know, seven mm-hmm. days a week. And that's it's, a, it's that's a full time you know job I mean? all all by itself. That you it is. It's, it, I do it seven days a week uh, with no break. So it's, it it takes up a lot of time. It's hard to be creative. You know, here I try to get work done when I'm when I'm helping the, the elderly parent. You know, it's an eighty six year old. Um, um, uh, mother, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, it's it's hard to be creative and try to you know in the same space when you're you know taking care of a person. But um, but basically, yeah. So I'd like to set up a Patreon um, here and then get that structured so there's there's enough coming in that I can spend more of my day job type of way from doing the computer work to doing the the it, module writing. It, it sounds like and you're then, going to have then, to. Uh, I'm sorry. I I was going to say that it sounds like you're going to have to be more of a creative director uh, and, and maybe a little bit less hands-on in order to get the output up. Uh, At some point, yeah, yeah, basically, too. That's why I was saying I might have to start hiring other writers and things like that to speed up the process as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's funny because that's what it seems like what they did with even TSR. You know what I mean? It starts mm-hmm. out with, um, you know, um, um, the, the, the two... Uh, people and then eventually suddenly have other people writing things and things like that. But yes, um, definitely. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's getting to the point where I could do it more of a full time thing and would also increase the output. And I think that would make the, the backers and, and supporters happy because there'd be more materials every year for them to, to enjoy. Um, so that's definitely, um, there also, in addition to that, I also want to, work on developing a new product line like for fifth edition type adventures to, to answer your other question about uh-huh, the website. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Cause, cause really, um, my main thing, just like, like yours would be first edition D and D cause that's kind of where we started with at our age. Um, the reality is in a lot of the forums, I see the first, the first edition forums, there's maybe like 16,000 members, 18,000 members for that. But when you look at a fifth edition D&D forum, there's like 120,000 people in there. Oh, gosh. So clearly... Clearly, yeah, so that's where that the money you, is. Right? Clearly, there's probably more people playing fifth edition D&D that would possibly be interested in like fifth edition modules versus... Not that I'm going to stop doing the first edition ones because I'm not. Those are my uh-huh. favorites. I have like 25 planned right now. But basically... <laughs> I want to expand out to, to making like a fifth edition product line for, for those folks. <laughs> Excuse me. And then I'd also like to make another product line that's that's um, like Gamma World type modules, but not Gamma World, but it's basically like maybe Mutant Call Classics from, from Goodman Games. So another, basically another line of modules will be for like post-apocalyptic gaming, you know, like Gamma World mm-hmm. or Mutant Future or, um, you know, Mutant Call Classics, something like that. So definitely have other things on the horizon as well. It sounds like a gr- And we also want to do like card game and other uh-huh. separate type of products. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a great it sounds like a great business plan, frankly. Uh and you're it's what you have is you know, it's holding its own, it's making a little money, uh and it's it it makes enough money to make it worth doing every year. 
but wow, if you could go after the the fifth edition modules, your market would would be 10 times larger than what you currently have. And all of a sudden, that starts to be maybe a real living. (laughs) I think you're right. I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely I I need to to be aware of the reality of, you know, the time we're living in. I mean, I'm always... Uh As far as D and I always think first edition. I always think, well, everybody knows what that is. But well, I'm wrong. Yeah, not necessarily because because the first because the first D and D they they people are exposed to is often the newest thing. You know, it's whatever right, they can right. get at the game store, and that's usually the latest release of whatever it is. You know, uh, exactly. I I tried to get back into D and D a couple of years ago, and I made the mistake of buying a fourth edition. And it, oh, and it was oh it was like what did they do to this they they've this is unplayable this is an unplayable mess uh and and apparently a lot of other people thought so too and and now we have um we have uh it, it's it's like they would have called it fifth edition but it's really more like dungeons and dragons fifth edition and we're very very sorry why would you why would you even publish that you know and it, it's it's kind of like that it's it's like well, what what were they thinking i think it's like this right right i mean i think it's just because of uh bus being uh you know a cantankerous old, old folks or something that have played the first edition while we don't understand the the hip and happening fifth edition players uh but basically um yeah it's um I think I think you're right. I think expanding to the fifth edition might open the market up because when you clearly look at the numbers, like I said, the fifth edition forum has like 120,000 members or something in it, versus like you know 13,000 maybe of uh, one yeah, of, you know 16,000 of one of the one D and D forums uh, or first edition forums. But yes, so um, then comes all these new series of problems because as a designer. We have to think, okay, well, for the if I, when I do the fifth edition modules, I have to create a whole kind of look and feel for those. You know, and yeah, you the, have to you have to match the one and, and the production values something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. the production yeah, values for the like fifth the edition are a lot higher. You you yeah, have to right. you have to match that production value, and that's going to be a lot more expensive to produce. If they go full color, yeah, it gets to be expensive because even just the um, these ones right now on small runs are, you know, um, get a little bit. Pricey, especially Dwarven King is Dwarven King is the biggest one. I have module number four of all the Dwarven King. That one's like forty-eight pages with two covers, so that's the most expensive module I have because it it costs a lot more to print mm-hmm. that one with, with more pages and more. Well, and, and the, there. the cost of the art, you know, in general. Oh, I mean, and the uh, cost of the art too. Yeah, and I'm fortunate that I work with a lot of artists that that are that are reasonable. You know, that 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 like what I'm doing, and you know, they they work with me on a, you know on a budget and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, my first one was actually the cover artist was Jeff D, uh, who did all the original D and D works. So when I did Hanging Conference of the Empire being my first module, I had Jeff D. Um, um, I hired him and he did the the cover, which was an actual painting um, for that particular module. Wow. The rest of the modules are done with colors, but yeah, he did the original painting for the the Coffins module. So that picture you see on the cover of Coffins was an actual. Um, acrylic painting 
Well, that, that's so, fantastic. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah, we have been talking to Mark Termino of Dark Wizard Games. He has four Dungeons & Dragons uh, modules out that are compatible with the earliest version of Dungeons & Dragons or the Osric rules. They are Vampire Queen, Starspawn, Undercity, and Dwarven King. Let me let me get the actual titles here. I got them right here. They are? Number well, one, Hanging Coffins of the Vampire Queen. Number two, Secret Machines of the Starspawn. Number three, Villains of the Undercity. And number four, Vault of the Dwarven King. And then there's the Monsters book, Monsters Manual, Monsters of Mayhem. And the fifth book is coming out, and it's it's called what again? That one I don't have a title oh, for yet. Oh, you don't have a title I for don't. it yet. Okay. No, I don't have a title for that, but it'll be like a dragon and a princess adventure. And you can find all of these for immediate sale at darkwizardgames.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of The Event Horizon. It was a pleasure having you on. Yes, thank you both for having me. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to episode 193 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for March 10th, 2018. Our guest today has been Mark Teermino, owner and lead designer for Dark Wizard Games. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and our executive producer Susan Fox. Visit darkwizardgames.com for more information on today's show. If you liked this week's episode and you would like to hear more of them, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and chip in. There is no national public radio fund coming to our rescue each month. That comes from you, the listeners, directly. You may also make one-time donations via our PayPal button at the bottom of the website or buy us a coffee by clicking on the button at the upper right-hand corner at kryptonradio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The navigator was Christine Cherry. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian P. McGuire. And the captain was voiced by none other than legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2018 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs>